according to dialexy.com, the seven hardest words to say are rural, which you can tell why that one does sound a little bit off. Sescapedalian. I should have practiced these first. Phenomenon. Onomatopoeia. And then, of course, they throw in their super catchphrases. <laughs> I can't. Okay. We're doing this live. Super califragilistic expialidocious and Worcestershire. However, if you ask Sir Elton John and then most narcissists or emotionally immature people, sorry actually seems to be the hardest word to say. And I am not a big fan of all or nothing statements, but I am confident that there are people walking the earth today who have literally never uttered the words, I'm sorry, followed by maybe an unfortunate number of people who have only uttered it after the word fine, as in fine, I'm sorry. Or there are probably even a number of people as well who have only uttered the word when it is then followed by any of the following. There, are you happy? Or, well, now are you going to say it too? Or, but it was your fault, and so on and so on and so on. So why is it so hard to say sorry for some people, but yet for others, it comes out almost reflexively? Hey, are you sitting there? Oh, I am so sorry. Or you gently bump into your wife's arm, and again, I, I was the one that bumped in, but she responds immediately, I sorry, I'm so sorry. And better yet, why do you often find this combination of people in relationships together? The people who then are quick to say sorry and the people that will never say sorry. And I really didn't mean this to come next, but I am sorry to say, but we're going to spend a fair amount of time talking about the, the word sorry today on Waking Up to Narcissism. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 99 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I'm your host, Tony Overbay. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast. And I'm realizing that trying to do this live is probably, I cannot go immediately to jokes and want to go on side tangents. So I want to set the table today and, and get right to the core of why I do think that it is so hard to say, I'm sorry for some people, because this is something that I believe comes so much from our family of origin, because when I talk about abandonment or our attachment issues that literally begin from the time we exit the womb, that if we are made to feel less than safe early in our lives, then our greatest fear is that we would be abandoned, even to the point of we will opt for anger or control or even shame, you name it, rather than own up to our actions. Because unfortunately, and I'm doing the royal we here, but uh, if there are people that are listening, probably a lot of them, that this is not the case, think of the person maybe in your life that is showing up this way. Let me even go back there and say the point where some people will opt for anger, control, shame, you name it, rather than own up to their actions. Because unfortunately, they were most likely told or modeled or shown that people who go against or cross those who matter will be cut off whether then um, any of us saw our parent or parents talk bad about their friends or take a victim stance in front of the kids are always claim to be better than. But as we grew up as kids, we might have even heard the, don't you ever lie to me? And if you do, you get the belt or you get disapproval or anger or you get your privileges removed. And it isn't necessarily done with kindness or gentleness or softness. Let me even go into one of my favorite things to talk about, which is the why is it so difficult to be happy story. And this is inspired from the work of Russ Harris in his book, The Happiness Trap. But imagine being an early human hunter-gatherer, because at that point, survival depends on finding food, water, shelter, and reproducing. But above all, staying alive was the priority. 
so then our primitive minds, they basically evolved primarily to keep us safe in a dangerous world. So the better that our ancestors became at spotting and avoiding threats, then the longer they lived and the more offspring that they had and so on and so forth. So you fast forward to today and our modern minds are still wired to assess everything that we encounter. This is what the core of anxiety is about. Anxiety was meant to be a good thing. When we encounter anything, is it good or bad? Is it safe or dangerous? Is it harmful or helpful? However, our threats now have evolved from saber-toothed tigers and, and woolly mammoths to everyday worries like job security, rejection, health concerns. And so as a result, we typically tend to worry about things that rarely, if ever, come to pass. That starts kicking into this fear that we have, this deep fear of then rejection and abandonment. Because now, add in there that we have this inherent need to belong to a group, a tribe, a people. That was crucial, especially for early human survival, because if your clan or group or people boot you out, then you go from being part of the group to prey, meaning that you are now in a pretty vulnerable spot if you're out on your own. So then our minds actually evolved to protect us from rejection by continually comparing us to others in the group. Am I fitting in? Am I doing the right thing? Am I good enough? And we still feel this need to fit in and we still feel rejection today constantly worrying about whether people will like us. So I hope you can see as we start to lay this out, that's inherent. That's in our DNA. That's part of who we are. It's part of the human condition. And in a little bit of that concept of becoming more emotionally mature is starting to learn that you are enough as you are, you are okay, that you can find safety. But in a, ideally, we want to do this in concert with another human being. Now take the emotionally immature or narcissistic person. And so if that's already in our core and our DNA, and then we didn't see it modeled with our own parents, then this is where the origin story of the, I will do anything to maintain control over somebody so that then they won't leave me, even an unhealthy way to keep that person in your life. And if I go down this, continue the path of my favorite story of the why is it so difficult to be happy, our modern minds are also so advanced that they start to create this, an idealized image of who we want to be. So then we compare ourselves to that fantasy. We can look on any social media anywhere and see somebody that we think is richer, slimmer, more beautiful, more successful. We just continually compare, compare, compare. And we've even put up a version of ourselves. I don't know. I, I was going to say me with hair. I don't really see that one anymore, but uh, the six pack abs or the chiseled jaw, who knows what it is. And we even compare ourselves to to an idealized or fictionalized version of ourselves. In essence, we're comparing ourselves to other people's fantasy view and then even a fantasy view of ourselves. So we end up feeling pretty inadequate because then we start to feel like we can never measure up. Then if we're turned into a partner and saying, hey, do you think I measure up? And that person sees this as a sign for them to now take advantage of so that then they can feel like, well, if I can take this one up position over this person, then they'll never leave me. You can see how that dynamic continues to grow and grow. Because go back to Stone Age, success meant getting more and getting better, better weapons and more food and larger stores of, of goods and more children for survival. Today, though, we chase more money and better jobs and status, a better body and, and more love. And even if we achieve some of these things, we still find ourselves wanting more and more. It's so wild to think that our brains are wired to focus on what we lack and we feel then we need to criticize ourselves um, and imagine worst case scenarios in order to get better. So there is the origin story of why it can be so difficult to find happiness. So now, back to apologies, consider how this fear of rejection and abandonment and adequacy starts to play into the fear in people with narcissistic traits, tendencies, or extreme emotional immaturity. 
because they too then are constantly comparing themselves to others, seeking validation and fearing that they will be seen as all bad if they admit any wrongdoing. So there's where it starts to branch off from the pathologically kind because the pathologically kind is quick to admit fault in order to then try to move along the narrative of peace or we'll be okay. But then the emotionally immature is so afraid of admitting wrong because then they think now you'll see that as they are all bad and then you will leave them. So that fear of abandonment is so deeply rooted in our evolutionary history and understanding that it starts to shed light on why narcissists or emotionally immature people struggle with apologies and taking ownership of their actions. And here's the part where I feel like in any podcast recording, I want to take a quick breath and say, I, I would imagine most of the people listening then are the pathologically kind. So then they may look over at that emotionally mature person over there in the room who has maybe not been very nice and just go, oh man, hey, hey buddy, come give me a hug. And then their own body says, no. That's not a good idea. I, I still want to just bring a lot of this uh, as awareness, because if we go back to those five rules of interacting with an emotionally immature person, hopefully you got your baseline raised and you got that PhD in gaslighting, or at least you're in your master's and you're working on that PhD thesis. You get out of unhealthy conversations, you set boundaries, and at this point have recognized that those are indeed challenges by the narcissist or the emotionally immature, and they'll continue to push. But that last thing is that you'll never give them the aha moment are the epiphany. One of the most frustrating, but also one of the most liberating things, because sometimes even if, as you hear something like, hopefully today's podcast, and we're going to break down the concepts of true apologies, that it will be tempting to want to say, hey, I think you could benefit from listening to this. And I just want to say that it's pretty normal. That's part of your kind nature. And if you do send this to that person, then I, I think it's okay if you just know that there's an acceptance that it may then be used against you. But if you feel like at your core that that's what you need to do, I want to meet you right there. But so that our, our evolutionary history, I hope I've made the point there and the way our minds are wired, make it challenging alone to be happy. And I feel like understanding that really can help you start to navigate your own struggle with self-worth and, and offer that insight into the fear of abandonment. But then now is where somebody that has more of that awareness or even kindness can then start to say, okay, it, it would be okay for me then to start to look to raise my baseline because I, I am an adult human being now. And while that might be wired in me to fear abandonment and rejection, then if I can get to this place where I know myself and I love myself, now others can get to know me or love me. But if I'm still not sure or certain of who I am, especially if I'm burning a lot of emotional calories trying to manage everybody else in the family or the relationship, then how could I know myself? And if that's the case, then I may not feel confident about who I am. And so then I might be more prey to, to more manipulative people that are going to tell me maybe what I want to hear rather than be curious about who I am. Story time now. So fast forward, one of the people that I've worked with recently was sharing with me that back when they were younger, and you can see here where this is what it looks like to not model taking ownership or apologizing for things. So this person had said that this was a time, I think they were in their early teens or maybe 11, 12, and they had just come downstairs from serving what this person called his sentence, as in he felt like it was more of a prison sentence, because he said it was typically really random. He said one day there had been a rule that wasn't enforced, and then the next day it would be, and that would be over and over again. But he came downstairs after getting in trouble for lying, but he said he realizes now that the reason he lied in this particular situation was simply because he had to make a judgment call. And he knew that there was about a 50-50 chance that he would be either punished or praised if he got caught because both had happened before. 
This time he got caught and he said the roulette wheel came up on red when he had bet on black. So now he had served his sentence and on his way downstairs from his punishment for lying, the doorbell rang and his dad yelled, don't you dare tell anybody that I'm home. I don't want to have to do anything right now. So answer that door and don't say a word about me being here. And then this is a, remember, we don't lie in this family, except for when we do. And then when we do, we don't acknowledge it. And heaven forbid, we say, oh man, sorry, champ. I realize the irony. I just got mad at you for lying and I might've modeled that behavior. Let's, let's step out back and have a catch. And reality, what happened was the son then answered the door. It was the dad's friend. The dad heard the son answering the door, heard his friend's voice and said, hey, get on in here. I don't know what my boy is thinking. And, and so the kid literally just came down from being punished and then was told, answer the door. I'm not here. Now he was told, but I am here. So I guess we do lie, even though I was being punished for lying. He said he even got better that when his dad heard his friend's voice at the door and his son telling the friend his dad wasn't home. And then my client, the kid at the time, said that he had learned to be an amazing actor, mind you. Dad heard his friend's voice, came around the corner. Steve made up no name. He said, nonsense. My boy should have come and got me. He knew I was home. And it still didn't even stop there. After Steve left, then my client's dad got angry with him and said that he should have known to let Steve in. So the dad was so disappointed at the son because hadn't the dad taught his son about the importance of friendships? And, and now, what if Steve thought he wasn't a good friend? And he said that even better yet, the next time that they were all together, his dad had him go and apologize to Steve for lying. It's just crazy. Makes no sense. So we're going to talk about the art of making a sincere and effective apology. Because I think that we, hopefully, we've all been there with a, a need to say, I'm sorry but sometimes not quite sure how to do it right. And I'm even talking about the people that don't have a problem with it, but I really have uh, strong thoughts around the things that we do to get rid of our discomfort. This article um, that I reference, and it's from uh, some research done by a professor emeritus at Ohio State University named Roy Lewicki, because he had spent a lot of time and he believes there's a science to crafting the perfect apology. Because if I get back to what do we do to get rid of our discomfort, then I think a lot of times people will apologize because they feel bad. I'm so sorry. And they're, and they're handing that power over to the other person to then, if that person says, it's okay, okay, now I feel better. But if that person says, I, I can't believe you did that. Now, the person that had, had done whatever they had done and then said, hey, can you forgive me or I'm sorry, and handed, in essence, that power over to the other person. Now, if that person doesn't accept the apology, the kind person offering the apology starts to feel like, oh man, I, what is wrong with me? I am broken. I'm bad. And then they can even think that that person thinks less of them. This is why uh, I like spending so much time talking about things like differentiation, because if you are aware that there's something that you have done that you feel you want or need to apologize for, then that's where I think that Roy Lewicki gets into the fundamentals of a good apology. And, and this is, we're talking about whether it's mending a broken relationship or, or smoothing over a workplace conflict or just saying sorry to a friend. Uh, Lewicki and his team conducted extensive research involving 755 people to understand what makes an apology more likely to be accepted. And they identified six key components that form the recipe for a successful apology. Here are his six key components that form the recipe for a successful apology. Number one is the expression of regret. And he said that's the part where it starts with genuinely feeling uh, sorry for what you've done. And I'm going to go in a lot more detail in the episode itself because I do want to go from a pure acceptance and commitment therapy lens of 
nothing wrong with you. You didn't do it wrong. There's just something that you did. And now you want to say, man, I, that, that is something I understand has impacted someone else or it's something that I didn't mean to do. Because I, I still really, I don't want to say struggle, that sounds dramatic, but the concepts of we're all just going through this life for the very first time dealing with the things we're dealing with. So this is what we did. This is what I said. This is how I showed up. So when somebody has good self-awareness, then I feel like then we can still express regret or apologize, but it's not from a, I'm so bad, what's wrong with me? But this is part of a way to connect with another human. He talks about expression of regret, feeling sorry for what happened. Then the second one is an explanation of what went wrong. You need to explain what happened and why. This is why I like the science of an apology, because this is, in essence, getting into that. We're almost starting to try to work out. I feel I'm starting to work into my four pillars of a connected conversation because there's a reason why I did what I did. If I have an, an opportunity to express myself and I have a willing participant who is assuming good intentions, then now we're talking. And then the third thing that Roy talks about is an acknowledgement of responsibility. When he said, admit that it, it is your fault and you made a mistake. It's so funny. I am, I, the therapist in me is going nuts. Fault and mistake versus, hey, this is what I did. And this is something that happened. I think I'm actually going to have quite a bit of fun with this episode when I get into that. He says, declaration of repentance. Promise not to repeat the mistake. Okay, now I'm having a moment. I can make that promise, maybe to alleviate my discomfort or anxiety in the moment. But the reality is, if it happens again, it, it will, but it won't be because I've got some nefarious motive or there's something that I can't wait to do this again. But I do like his fifth thing, offer of repair, show your commitment to fixing the situation. So this might be something that if I did do something that that happened and I feel bad about it. Oh, am I going to tell this one? Saturday was National Candle Day at Bath, Body, Bedworks, and Beyond. I know one of those. I know there's a couple of those stores that way. Bought a lot of three-wick candles for the office. I'm a therapist. It's par for the course. And accidentally banged into the side of uh, my wife's car and dented it. And she's been trying to avoid dents, uh, bless her heart, for a long time. But the first one comes from me. I really didn't mean to do it. Felt bad. Um, I you know, am offering to repair. So get a dentless door person in the area to come do it. That way, man, I want to fix that situation. I think if I have to, maybe I should work through this. It'll be good for me. Because the next one, he says, request for forgiveness. The final step, though, he says the least effective is to ask for forgiveness. I hope they shall forgive me. But that, that really falls into this, the power of acknowledgement and repair. Because according to this Lewicki, the most critical components of an apology are acknowledgement of responsibility and offer of repair. He said that those are two of the key things. In other words, he said, it's really helpful to say, hey, this is what I did and I can fix it. This shows sincerity and a willingness to make amends. The other elements matter too. And let me just model, let me go back to my candle thing. Maybe I do have a real challenge with denting my wife's car, but I can, I can model how the emotionally immature or narcissistic person would have shown up for sure because she was going to drop me off somewhere and she was going to go run some more errands. And so I think I could have seen the narcissist or the emotionally immature person saying, well, if you would have let me drive, then I wouldn't have been on this side of the car and then I wouldn't have swung this bag and it wouldn't have hit your car. Or I could see the, the emotionally immature person shifting blame immediately saying, well, I was carrying too many candles. If you would have offered to help, then maybe this wouldn't have happened. Or maybe you've had those people in your lives where it just is something that they can't just say, man, that I am so sorry. Because the last thing I was doing was uh, throwing a bunch of candles in a bag and swinging the bag around randomly or aggressively. So it happened. And I am so sorry. I really am. But not saying so, you know, this stuff happens. So what are you going to do? Or saying that I, I think I know how I can make restitution or I can repair this or I can get somebody to repair it. 
And I was sharing this example actually earlier in the day in a session with somebody and he was empathizing. And it was funny because later he texted and he said, uh, don't forget to follow up with that dentless door guy. And I just, I loved it because I have not done that yet. And that is one of those things where if I want to build emotional safety and trust in a relationship, then I need to follow through on the things that I say, because it gets back to that. Sometimes even people acknowledge or take ownership of something just to alleviate their discomfort or to get validation or praise or to manage the emotions of the other person just to to clear the air or calm down the the rough seas. But then do they do anything moving forward? That's one of those keys. It's up to me now to follow up and do that. So I feel like now the world is my accountability partner and I need to follow up and uh, take ownership and and tell how the story plays out in the next week or two so that I will make sure and do it. Well, I hope that I would do it without needing that incentive, but uh, I think you see where I'm going. And so then Lewicki does talk about how, how important context is. He says the context in which you apologize also does play a significant role because apologies are received differently depending on the situation. For instance, if somebody apologizes for having a lack of integrity, it's less likely to land or be accepted than a, an apology for a lack of competence. Meaning if I'm just saying I'm, I lack integrity, I am a horrible person, then I, I feel like that's one where probably the person saying that is in a relationship or a situation where that might be one of their go-tos because that's taken on that victim status. So the other person says, no, no, you're not. You're not a bad person. But if I am apologizing for a lack of competence, which is a very aggressive or dram- dramatic way to say that I didn't do something, then that is more likely to be received. And I think it's important to note as well, and I'm realizing that we could do an entire episode on this, but in real life situations, things like emotion and voice tone and body language can really impact the effectiveness of your apology, eye contact, sincere tone when delivering a face-to-face apology. But when you are interacting with someone who is more emotionally mature, this is where the concept of differentiation is really important. Because if you have been working on your tone and your eye contact and your emotion and you are showing up and you are being calm and you are the one that is confident that you are expressing yourself in a, in a mature way. And if the other person is saying, man, stop yelling at me or okay, uh, don't need to get so aggressive. Do you have the courage in that moment? Well, two things. One, self-confront. Am I, is there a chance that, that I really still am not even aware of what I'm not aware of? Because that could very likely be true, but you also may have created a situation or almost this relational frame in your relationships where that person is not used to you taking ownership or accountability, or they're used to you offering a narcissistic apology. The old, I guess I, I guess I'm sorry, but if you wouldn't have done this, then I never would even have done what I did. As a matter of fact, it's definitely your fault. And I can't even believe that I'm the one that's having to apologize. As a matter of fact, I kind of feel like you should be apologizing to me. So if they're used to those kind of apologies, then you could say almost anything and their body keeps the score and they're already on high alert and ready for you to then not take ownership, gaslight, or start to raise your voice if if there is a disagreement if or again, if there's two different opinions. If you are that one that is starting to wake up to your own emotional immaturity and you know the work that you're doing, then this is where I, why I talk about the concepts around a healthy ego because that healthy ego is based off of real life experience. So if you've been meditating like a champ, if you've now built in a nice pause and you have been doing the work and listening to the podcast for you, not with your elbow, thinking about your partner only that they need to do this, then you may be showing up absolutely genuine and sincere now in an apology. What a chance for you to be empathetic and understand that you've created a situation in which your partner does not feel safe or cannot believe that you are being sincere because here comes empathy. 
that would be really hard. And I am so sorry that that person feels that way. I, I go back to an episode I did a while ago on holding the assertive frame, which is a way to start to deliver your partner back into safety. But now, again, that's a them thing. But the way that you can show up is by holding this assertive frame, which means don't take on a victim status. Know that they are testing the relationship for safety because it has not felt safe or stable in the past. Put your connection ahead of your fear or ego. Don't explain your love. Just be and do. Because if that person is feeling unsafe, then they may be pushing some buttons, even subconsciously, to say, I don't know if I believe this. What an opportunity for you to continue to stay present and hold that assertive frame. Relevance of apologies today, I think, is important to acknowledge as well, because I feel like the more that we are seeing people out in the wild, politicians, CEOs, parents, there's, again, I go back to, if you are a therapist these days, there's some really bad examples of bad therapists out there that are giving some really really bad advice and are even going to jail because of that. I'm thinking of the Jody Hildebrand, Ruby Frankie case where there's allegations of child abuse there as part of a parenting model, which is bizarre. It, It makes no sense. So you're seeing people that are even put in this public spotlight that are absolutely not willing to take ownership or say that they are sorry or they apologize. So I think it's even more important for us to recognize that this is a skill that needs to be learned and exercised. So Lewicki, this research is really fascinating. If you Google his name or I can put a link in the show notes, there is a lot of data around the art of apology. And I think it's just so important to be aware that there there are components of a more self-aware, emotionally mature apology, and then just learn those critical components. Now, I want to explore now, let's go back to when somebody has grown up in a situation where they haven't had really good role models as far as parenting goes, so or grown up with emotionally immature parents, because that can shape an individual's understanding of what it even looks like to take ownership of an apology or to apologize. Because when somebody grows up in this environment where they never witnessed their parents apologizing or taking ownership of their mistakes, then they often don't know what they don't know. And it creates this significant gap in their learning. Because if you've ever tried to explain something to somebody that honestly doesn't understand what you're talking about at all, or if you've been the person that I will have that in in therapy where I had a computer programmer who I I really appreciate where they are along their journey of of becoming a computer programmer. And I personally don't feel like they, they necessarily have a lot of people listening to what they are going through. So I said, tell me more and let me understand. And they just started talking about these projects and the way that they code and program. And and I get completely lost and I try so so hard to stay focused and understand, but it's I, I don't have a point of reference. So sometimes I feel like that if a kid doesn't have a point of reference for taking ownership or accountability or apologizing, that does create this significant gap in their learning. Because children often learn by observing, most often learn by observing their parents' behavior. And I would say apologies are no exception. So if they didn't see apologies in action, then they may not grasp the concept or even better yet, the importance of taking responsibility for one's actions. And then if you have ever tried to talk to, if you are somebody who has emotionally immature parents and you've tried to talk to them or express yourself, and and if you see them struggle with acknowledging their own wrongdoings or mistakes, then it can often feel like they're prioritizing their own emotional comfort over admitting fault even at the point of causing their kid, adult kid, teenage kid, to feel like they are being gaslit or that they're the crazy ones, when in reality, that is their reality. And so in that that context, in a lot of these 
households, children start to internalize the message that admitting wrongdoing is a bad thing or it's unsafe. And they're seeing that still play out in their adulthood, whether they're seeing that it's modeled as a sign of weakness or, or too vulnerable, whatever that looks like. And then I sometimes call this the assumption of badness, because in the absence of positive role models for taking ownership and offering sincere apologies, then I think that a lot of people start to develop these misconceptions about any act of admitting any type of fault, that it is this negative or harmful behavior and that therefore they are a bad person. And it's almost as if the person who doesn't ever take ownership or accountability, it's as if they assume that, well, they aren't doing anything, quote, wrong or bad. So you shouldn't feel the way that you feel. So that's where we start to internalize this. Well, I must be bad because I do have these feelings because I am a human being. And, uh, and I just feel like nobody's taking ownership around me. And taking ownership a lot of times can just feel really raw and vulnerable. And that's where I can almost look at this like a form of betrayal or betrayal trauma. Because if you open up and you are super vulnerable to somebody that you care about or is close to you, the hope is that you are offering them a little bit of your heart or your soul and then saying, man, be gentle with this. But they take it and they throw it on the ground and, and they, they stomp on it. So one of the key things you can do, though, is if you are that person, break free from that cycle or that pattern. Be the transformational figure in your generational line. Breaking free from this pattern of not taking ownership or apologizing requires a very conscious effort to unlearn these misconceptions about apologies or about taking ownership that maybe you didn't even know that you didn't know. And I really think, and I'm not trying to sound cliched, but it involves recognizing that admitting fault is, it takes courage and it is absolutely essential for a healthy relationship. And how do you start doing that? Go to therapy, counseling. You're already listening to podcasts, but you need a safe place to start to explore and challenge these deeply ingrained beliefs because they're going to be pretty reflexive for quite a while. So let's talk about the role of self-compassion, because I think now if we're going to really dig to what you need to be able to show up and offer one of these effective apologies, imagine what that would look like approaching an apology from a place of self-compassion where you acknowledge that you're not perfect and that is perfectly okay. And that people that are not ever acknowledging any kind of fault, it's as if they need to convince themselves that they are so special or perfect that therefore they couldn't have done it. Because that self-compassion is a huge piece to this, almost this mindset shift that will start to impact the way that you offer and also the way you receive apologies. Because then you even start to recognize that how, how amazing that is that somebody is willing to offer that vulnerability to you. It's very important for you to respect it. So I really think when you start to understand that we are all just navigating life as ourselves, as you or me, that every single situation is a unique learning opportunity because you are showing up in that situation and you just did that thing that you just did for the very first time in your life in that moment as you. So now let's go back to those six steps of the apology. And then if you insert this self-compassion. So when we look at that first one, expression of regret, then instead of feeling immense shame, if you're offering yourself grace and self-compassion, you feel empathy for the person that has maybe been hurt by your actions and maybe even empathy for you for the past, the way that you have beat yourself up because then you can genuinely regret. I regret causing that person pain, but it wasn't my intention. And I don't even have to go into a dark place because I did it because, oh man, I, that would be really hard for them. And I'm grateful that, uh, that now I have some data to work with to learn because then this empathy can more or less guide your apology. If we look at Lewicki's second concept where there's an explanation of what went wrong, 
if you are operating from this place of self-compassion, you are absolutely going to be more open to explaining what happened and why without fear of judgment, because the judgment that may come, it's a them thing because you were just being and doing. So now you see it as a chance. Okay. I want to clarify the context, but that doesn't mean, okay, I'll admit my wrongdoing, but I want to clarify the context and offer empathy because I am so sorry if that is, if that hurt you, because that was absolutely not my intent. And then take a look at his third item, acknowledgement of responsibility. So now coming at it from a place of self-compassion, recognizing your role in the situation becomes less about feeling wrong and more about now taking ownership or accountability as part of your very unique journey. And so then why did I do it? Well, the real, the real reason is because it, I did. Whatever it is, it happened. And now I can learn. I can also apologize and express empathy, but I can uh, learn that I am also an adult human being who can use every opportunity for my good. When Lewicki talks about this declaration of repentance and you're coming at it from a place of compassion, you're more willing to commit to the change because now you understand making mistakes is part of growing. You hear that so often, but until you really internalize it, it just sounds cliched. But when you internalize it, then you have to make mistakes in order to grow because if not, you're probably not taking a lot of big chances and you're just doing things that that maybe seem easy so you can get validation or say that you do these things so much better than others. And insert the concept of self-compassion in your offer to repair, because now it is, again, coming from this place of empathy and now taking action to make amends doesn't feel like a big burden or something that uh, you have to do by way of duty or a checklist, because now it is an opportunity to show your commitment to growth, to growth, your personal growth and understanding of what another human being's experiences. And because I really still go back to the, I think more to yourself, again, this growth, but also in concert with this other human being. Because I think we are often far more likely to follow through on things when there is a healthy accountability buddy, not a warden or a or a shame shaman. Okay, come on, like shame shaman? <laughs> How have I not given that title to certain, I don't know what comes to mind first, are many of the people I work with who just go to their religious leader to confess and who are met with the old, oh man, do you realize what uh, what you're doing could do to your family? Not to mention your eternal salvation as he almost looks in his desk for, uh, do I have that midi pitchfork and a lump of coal that I can give this person to make sure that they don't forget that what they did was wrong and bad? Anyway, especially though, if you have ever turned to that religious leader for help or guidance to acknowledge what you've done and you're almost symbolically stating, here's my desire for change, And here is another human being that I can go or can help me on this journey. But you didn't go into that situation. I'm again, still talking about going into maybe this, uh, this religious person's office. You didn't go into that situation hoping to feel worse or actually not even just a religious person's office. Anybody, you don't go in there hoping to feel worse because trust me, feeling bad was the cure for behavior change. Then we would actually all be so perfect because we're really good at beating ourselves up. It would, it would darn near be boring. I can only imagine walking down the street of seeing your neighbor. Uh, hey, Fred, what are you up to? Well, Tony, honestly, not much because I've literally done everything I've wanted to do. And I'll be gosh darned if I haven't done it all perfect. So then I turned to my wife, Betty, to see if I can help her with anything. And what you know what? She has completed everything too. To which I guess if I'm still in this world, then I would say, well, I wish I could offer you something other than my own awesomeness and perfection. But I'm currently seeing how easy it is to hit exactly 180 foot strikes per minute, which is apparently the perfect cadence. And uh, wouldn't you know it, that is it's just how I walk. Well, I would say have a great day, but you know, kind of a given. To which Fred would say, I didn't know that. And in essence, I have a brain like a computer. So, you know, 
artificial intelligence. I knew you were actually going to say all of those things exactly because AI is basically a predictive engine. So where were we? Okay, we were at this offer to repair after taking some serious accountability. And the last piece is with self-compassion, you've got this request for forgiveness. So you genuinely seek forgiveness, not just to relieve emotional discomfort again or to check a box, but to restore trust and strengthen the relationship. And let me now let me go big on the concepts around emotional immaturity with this topic, and then we will wrap it up and go and, and head home here. But the, there is a trap, I think, that happens so often of the narcissistic or the superficial apology. And I know I've done an episode or two in the past on that. But let's take a look real quick at why so many people do offer these superficial apologies, because it's as if they're driven by duty or it's this de- desire to alleviate their discomfort. When I talk about little kids are basically narcissists by definition, I do think that often we, this is where we almost force this superficial apology. What do you say? Go tell them that you're sorry. So then they feel like, okay, it's a sense of duty or it's a checklist. And so often these apologies are treated like these check boxes. And, and once that discomfort subsides after they check the box, then I think they've missed their opportunity for genuine learning and growth that would follow. And then this whole cycle of these checkbox apologies or narcissistic apologies, it just perpetuates a cycle because the focus is on feeling better in the moment, not on understanding the root causes of the behavior or preventing uh, future things from happening or are literally just growing. It's, it's almost like putting a bandaid on a wound, but you haven't addressed the underlying issue and you just, I don't know, you hope it gets better. And this is maybe one of the ways that you can start to look at how you embrace growth. So by starting to shift the focus from immediate relief to genuine self-improvement and then relationship repair, now we start looking at apologies because they become far more than just words said to alleviate discomfort and move on. They are these opportunities for growth and transformation. And then let me spend one more, let's go one more round, I guess is what we would call it, of the wikis, uh, these six concepts of an apology. But uh, the, let's look at each one of these, these components and now take a look at why they would be such a challenge for the emotionally immature or narcissistically traited individual. So expression of regret. So we go back to this is this emotional aspect of an apology where you have to genuinely convey that you feel sorry for your actions. And it's essential because it shows the empathy and compassion for the person that you have, you have injured. Challenge for the emotionally immature person. Emotionally immature people struggle with this so much because it requires them to acknowledge the impact of their actions on others and that they may have caused someone else to feel bad. And then that is their all or nothing black or white thinking. So they might avoid expressing regret because they fear facing the emotional discomfort that comes with recognizing that they had, that they, they played a role in something that again, it, it's just them being and doing, but that somebody else could say, you, you hurt my feelings. You did something bad or wrong. And they're so desperate for validation or control. That will be such a challenge to admit fault. I think the second component, an explanation of what went wrong, you can see, you can almost fill these in, I think yourself, but that requires somebody providing a clear explanation of what happened and why it happened, because that's so important for understanding the context of an apology. But for the emotionally immature person, they may find it difficult to explain their actions because it forces them to confront their mistakes and admit that they were wrong. And we've talked before about confabulation and the challenge here is that their mind could be confabulating the narrative in real time so that it literally to them did not happen that way, couldn't have happened that way, which leads to that acknowledgement of responsibility, the heart of the apology where you admit that you're at fault, accept responsibility, 
And I feel like the challenge for the emotionally immature person for each one of these six steps is almost rinse, lather, and repeat because they struggle with acknowledging responsibility because again, here we go, makes them feel like they did something wrong. They made a mistake and they're trying to avoid discomfort. So they downplay their role in the situation. Uh, This declaration of repentance, promising not to repeat the mistake, they will resist that commitment all day long because it would require, There's we're now we're so far down the path of, well, if they didn't do it already and it was your fault, even if something happened, then they there's not even a an acknowledgement or a concept of that it won't happen again because that's a you thing. Well, yeah, that's on you. You made me do it or you did it. It wasn't what you said it was. The offer of repair, you know, now we're talking about making concrete steps to make amends, rectify the situation. And that may require them to actually sacrifice, sacrifice their time or their energy. So I would imagine that they would resist taking action to rectify a situation back to avoiding discomfort and convenience. And, and I think when you get to these further steps of apology in their mind at this point, then it never happened the way you said it did. So this is a moot point. It's irrelevant to even talk about. And the request for forgiveness, while the least effective part of an apology, it still is important because it shows humility and willingness to mend the relationship. Difficult. That would be a challenge for the emotionally mature person because of them fearing rejection so bad and wanting that validation. So I think you can see why then if somebody is not trying to be better and they cannot acknowledge that this is something that they could have done and another person may have had a, a even a negative experience, then we're not even going to touch those, those few last few layers or levels of the components of an apology. So I am going to skip over. I wrote some things down around the acceptance and commitment therapy principle of self as context or self in context. And it really is just this way to, and I've done a podcast or two on that, but this principle called self as context, it means recognizing you are constantly evolving and every situation is a new experience for you. So then you can step back and look at yourself in the situation because that's a little bit easier way to take a look at what happened because it, it takes you out of your own self or ego. And you can view what happened in that situation with the players, you being one of them. So that might be something that uh, we can cover in a future day. I really want to get to this because I want to, uh, I want to wrap things up. I do like to put a, what did we learn today? And if you've heard in any of the previous podcasts, it, it's a hearkening back to good old, I don't, eighties cartoons or any kids movies where the main character jumps on at the end and says, what we've learned today is. So I do often write out the what did we learn today. So this is where I want to help those who are trying to embrace the future and artificial intelligence and then those who are so worried that it will just be perfect and it will eliminate the need for all of us as human beings. And so I think this will be kind of fun to share the, I don't know, the behind the scenes. So I, here's what I jotted down today's episode. We explored why it can be so challenging to be happy. Our evolutionary history has hardwired our minds to focus on threats and comparisons and that makes it difficult for us to find lasting contentment. And we've also connected this to fear of abandonment in narcissistic individuals and shedding light on their struggles with apologies and taking ownership. And then understanding these concepts that will empower us to navigate our own self-worth and it'll provide insight into the complexities of the emotionally mature or the narcissist in your life. So those are the, some of the things that we've learned today. So then what I did was I went to ChatGPT And then I said, I want to read you the prompt because I think that this is interesting. And I'll tell you right now, it did not end up being as clever as I really wanted to. So I took that paragraph that I just said to you and I said, I want to do a tiny bit of tongue in cheek in the closing based off of the old 1980s cartoons or kid movies, where at the end, the main character would say something like, 
we've learned that it's okay to dot, 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 or, and I said, it seemed like each life lesson was framed in the, we learned this, or we learned that, or we also learned it's okay to, and so on. So I said, can you take this paragraph that I wrote and rewrite it based off of this idea? And so I thought, oh, this will be really fun. But it just, it wasn't as fun as I thought it would be. Here's what it said. In today's episode, we've embarked on an adventure into the challenging world of happiness. Our journey has revealed that our ancient ancestors wired our minds to spot danger and make comparisons, making happiness a bit of a treasure hunt. And guess what, folks? We've also uncovered a hidden treasure chest, the fear of abandonment and narcissistic individuals. So I just want to note, we're halfway through the paragraph and we haven't learned anything yet. Or what have we learned today? By understanding these secrets, we've learned that it's okay to embrace self-compassion, to dive into mindful self-reflection, and to master the art of effective apology. So remember, in this grand adventure of life, it's okay to be kind to yourself, to explore your inner thoughts, and to apologize sincerely for your missteps. Happy adventuring. Not a bad recap, but there was none of the, we learned that. So let me leave you though with three legitimate action-based takeaways from today. Practice self-compassion. Start by showing kindness and understanding to yourself. And embrace this idea that making mistakes is part of uh, the human existence, of being human. And it doesn't make you all bad. So then the next time that you find yourself criticizing or comparing yourself, give a little pause and replace those thoughts with some self-compassion. You you have to start getting to that being aware phase. Next, mindfulness, mindfulness, mindfulness. I still encourage a daily mindfulness practice of some sort. Start there. But mindful self-reflection. Take a minute every day. And just have a little bit of mindful self-reflection be in the present moment. This involves taking a step back and objectively observing your thoughts and emotions without judgment. They are thoughts. They are emotions. Check those out. Plenty more coming where those came from. And explore why you might be seeking validation or fearing rejection. Are you expressing? Are you confessing because you want to alleviate your discomfort? Or are you looking for a connection or accountability with another human being? And if so, can you trust that person or will they trust or will they keep your your heart's safe. And if not, what you learn is not that you are unlovable, but that that person is maybe not as trustworthy. And this self-awareness becomes this incredibly powerful tool for personal growth. And then last but not least, effective apology skills. If you're in a relationship with a, an emotionally immature person or somebody with narcissistic traits or tendencies, or you simply want to improve on your own communication, work on mastering these effective apology skills and then start practice uh, offering sincere apologies when you make a mistake and encourage open dialogue in your relationships. And remember, taking ownership doesn't make you all bad. It it legitimately becomes a path to growth and understanding, even in understanding or recognizing if the people in your life are safe people or people worthy of sharing of your inner world. So thanks so much. I look forward to uh, any feedback that you have. I continue to get your emails and stories and I want all the questions And I appreciate all the support and we will see you next week on Waking Up to Narcissism.